Welcome to Love Your Library, Hampshire Library's podcast. I'm Hattie Dulac, here with my co-host Isaac Fravashi. Hello, Isaac. Hi, Hattie. It's great to see you. What are you reading at the moment? Oh, actually, I'm reading a really great book called, it's a bit of an old one, it's Fried Green Tomatoes at the Whistle Stop Cafe by Fanny Flagg. And actually, it's a really interesting one because I was reminded of this story by our round table last time about Jojo Moyes, The Giver of Stars. It's a book that's sort of set in the same era, but there was a film starring Kathy Bates and a few others when I was younger that I used to watch and I really liked it. And this is the original story to that, so I've been reading it. It's about two women's kind of relationship in depression era America and all of the sort of challenges that are associated with that. It's it's set in this tiny little town on a train line and it's got a lot of that old Americana kind of feel to it, which is really nice. And then it, it brings the new in as well. So it's quite a good one for that nostalgia factor for me because I did obviously watch that film quite a lot when I was a kid. But yeah, that's what I'm reading. What about you? That sounds awesome. No, I love Kathy Bates. I'll have to look that one up. Um, it's a good one. Yeah. Yeah, I'm reading Girl, Woman, Other uh, by Bernadine Evaristo for my uh, book club at the moment. Um, yeah, it's really, really good, really interesting to get into. I've, it's been one I've been meaning to read for a while now. Yeah, it's, it's sort of good to finally get around to that as well. And thank you to our supporter, Borrowbox, the library app that lets you download ebooks and audiobooks straight to your phone and tablet. And obviously one of the great things about Borrowbox is that every month we get a list of unlimited titles that you can download without waiting for them to become available. So you can just pick up your phone, have a little browse, click download and start reading straight away. So what is available this month, Isaac, of our unlimited titles? Well, one of the reads that we've got this month is The Art of Rest by Claudia Hammond. Um, That's our online reading group's uh, book of the month. It's not just about how to get to sleep or how to meditate or how to make time for yourself. It's actually about the kind of the science behind resting and sort of recuperation, which, yeah, I think it'll be a great read for the start of 2022 and to sort of carry us on into the rest of the year as well. Yeah, absolutely. I don't think there's anyone out there at the moment who couldn't do with a bit of in-depth rest. That sounds really good. And for the rest of our unlimited titles, please don't forget to check our episode show notes for a full list of them. And obviously, we also have Hampshire Library's blog, which is a place where you'll find our unlimited titles for the month as well. And on this month's episode, I've been chatting with Jennifer Saint, the author of Ariadne, which is a modern retelling of the Theseus and the Minotaur myth. It's one that I've been seeing everywhere in the papers at the moment about it being one of the most sort of popular mythical retellings out there right now. I really, really enjoyed reading it. I would definitely recommend it to anyone who's interested in that. I haven't read it yet, but it's definitely on my to-read list because the cover is so beautiful. If you haven't seen it, it's got this beautiful blue cover with sort of gold leaves on it. It's really lovely. And, um, and I love a retelling. I absolutely adored Madeleine Miller's Circe and it's obviously a really popular format at the moment. I think it's It's a great way to bring modern concepts into older stories. But yeah, it's great. I I really want to read it. Yeah, it's a brilliant genre. Um, And for our listeners, uh, you can find a link to reserve the book at your local library in the episode show notes. Um, But for now, let's hear from Jennifer. Hi, Jennifer. Thank you for joining us. Hi, thanks very much for having me. 
Now, uh, your new book, Ariadne, is a retelling of the Greek myth that many of our listeners will know under the name of Theseus and the Minotaur. We traditionally look at it through the lens of Theseus as a character. But here in your novel, we're we're looking through the eyes of Ariadne, the princess of Crete, who um, she really enables Theseus to defeat the Minotaur and ultimately is the whole reason that the myth exists, because she is the reason that he survives the labyrinth. Um, Can you sort of tell us a bit about what it was that drew you to the story of Ariadne? The story of Ariadne is just one that I, like you said, um, had always just accepted it at face value. So I used to read Greek mythology when I was a child. I studied it at A-level. I went on to read classical studies for my degree. And it was probably at university that I got the idea of how you could flip the narrative and see it from another perspective, because that was when I was introduced to Ovid by um, one of my lecturers. And I read Ovid's Heroides, which is this collection of letters that Ovid wrote in the first century in the voice of these women of mythology to the men who define their stories. And Ariadne writes a letter in the Heroides. And one of the lines that stuck with me, it stuck with me so much that it is, in fact, the epigraph of the novel, is where she is imagining Theseus going back to Athens and she says you'll be standing there with these admiring crowds and you'll recite the story of how you defeated the Minotaur it was all thanks to me and she says you won't remember or you won't tell anyone that I I did it for you and he's going to get all the all of the glory and she's not going to to get any recognition for what she did he's he's going to leave her on an island and um, to die so that really stuck with me but it wasn't until I then actually read the story of the Minotaur to my own children so quite a few years later that I really got the idea of how much more of a story she had to tell and it was one of my children actually asked me and said oh what happened to her afterwards and I did look for it and I couldn't find a a version of her story and there's obviously all of these um, mythological retellings coming out, which um, which is absolutely brilliant. Um, but I couldn't find one that was that was Ariadne's story. And so I think if you want to read a story and it doesn't exist, then the obvious thing to do is to write it. Brilliant, yeah. And and so, so something that I quite like to ask authors is is what was the first part of the story that you wrote? Because you know some people start at the very very beginning. Some people really have a clear idea of where they want the the story to go. What was that for you? So I always start with an image of the ending in my mind. So I don't write the ending first. I do write in order because I I just can't bring myself to ever write anything out of sequence, actually. Um, But I I, I always know what the ending is going to be and I have a really clear idea. And with Ariadne, although I started with the prologue, I started on page one. I knew I was working towards the scene on Naxos, which is taken from the Heroides. And that was kind of an updated version of the Heroides that I wrote for that section. And I had I had sentences ready to go. I kind of I knew I could I could envisage it so clearly. And I like to write like that with these kind of um, an overall idea of where it's going, but also towards these key scenes as well. So you kind of break it down into smaller sections and then it all feels a little bit more manageable rather than sitting there on page one thinking, oh, I've got to write 300 of these. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, and I'd, I can sort of imagine with tackling something like like Greek mythology that, that it can almost feel like a like a huge thing to have to go through, can't it? You sort of touched a bit there on um, that you started with the Heroides as one of your kind of source texts. But I was sort of wondering that with sort of oral storytelling of Greek mythology, there's so many different variations and so many, you know, these stories really shoot off in in 
different ways, limited only really by the imagination. How do you start with the kind of research scope for something like this? Um, yeah, good question. Um, I, I always have research kind of ongoing because I think because it is such a huge task as well. So I have my kind of key text. So I had the Herodides and I had the Euripides play Hippolytus, which is um, Phaedra's story. Um, and I had my kind of reference books that I have of, of you know, sort of um, like, you know, the Oxford Classical Dictionary, which lists all the characters, all the places, all the events. And I do kind of keep that going as I'm writing the first draft, because I find it quite intimidating to think, well, no, I find it frustrating, really, if I thought, oh, I'm going to have to spend two months researching before I can even start writing. I think when you have the idea for a story, you don't want to lose that passion, that inspiration, that kind of spark. And so I research as I go and I have terribly chaotic notes. I'm not organised at all. So I have a notebook and I just write things down constantly as they occur to me. Um, I have like like a file on my computer where I keep pictures of artwork and statues and bars paintings because we've got all the visual references as well for ancient Greece, which I think is so helpful when you're trying to create this, this Bronze Age world and an idea of who these who these characters might have been. So yeah, it is a it is a huge task and I approach it in a very haphazard way. <laughs> um, but, but it gets the job done as I go. And it does, I think as well, like you said, um, it goes in so many different directions. And so many of the stories directly contradict each other. And especially when you you are trying to put some kind of coherent timeline on things, because that's something the stories are very hazy on. So it is a bit like um, the Hydra, you know, you kind of cut off one head and you're like, I know what I'm doing here. And then you're like, nope, two more have grown. Some things come up and it contradicts what's gone before and I have to find a way to fix it all together. So it's complicated. <laughs> and how do, how do you sort of, how do you make those decisions? How do you decide sort of what to keep in and what to leave out and what to sort of reshape, if you like? So sometimes it's just, it, it's just simply, I suppose, I have such a clear idea of the story I want to tell. I really knew with Ariadne that kind of the other stories that I wanted to bring in, because I do bring in other other people's myths, other people's stories. And I had that common thread of women being punished for the actions of the gods or the actions of men, because that's, what's ha- that's what happens to Ariadne and that's what happens to Phaedra. And so I found other stories that also fitted into that, that could kind of expand and develop that theme and trace it through. So those were some sort of straightforward decisions to make. There were some, and some of them I think are just instinctive. As as I'm writing, I know what's going to fit my version of that character. But some were a really conscious decision. And that was in particular Phaedra's story. I mentioned the Euripides play Hippolytus. And the sources that we have for Phaedra, she is notorious. She's this kind of scandalous woman who accuses, falsely accuses her stepson of rape. And she brings about this disaster on the whole family. And I really didn't want to tell that story because I didn't want to tell a story of a false allegation of rape. I, I found it very frustrating that in Greek mythology, where women are so frequently assaulted, um, that that's kind of one of the main stories that comes out when a woman makes it up and that's such a sort of a, an, a rare occurrence and it wasn't a, a narrative that I wanted to perpetuate. I was writing very much inspired by the Me Too movement and it wasn't it wasn't a version of Phaedra that I found convincing or believable. So I made a really deliberate decision with her story that I was going to tell a different version, that I was going to keep the same events but I was going to change her motivation to kind of cast a different light on it and exonerate her from, from that accusation.
I think you did a brilliant job of it. I think Phydra's character is really strong, very sort of lovable uh, as well. And, and the, you had, there's this brilliant sisterly bond between the two of them. And, and it really drives a lot of the, the narrative. I sort of wonder if you could speak about, a bit about why that sorority was so important to show in the book. So primarily because their stories are so very clearly defined, like you said at the start, by the men that they're involved with. So Ariadne is defined by Theseus' legend and Phaedra by her relationship to Hippolytus. And so I really wanted to look at them as fully rounded human women. And that meant exploring their other relationships. So the relationships that they have with each other and the relationships that they have with other people in their lives as well. I didn't want it to just be about the effect that Theseus had, the effect that Dionysus had, etc. So that was that was a really crucial part of it. And they are these legendary sisters, but I've never come across um, any any version of their stories that puts them in the same place at the same time. And I thought it was so interesting when they come from this terrible, complicated family dynamic of, of um, having the Minotaur as their half-brother. I thought that it was so interesting to examine how that would have affected them in different ways as well. Um, so I, I thought you couldn't really tell their story without looking at, them as sisters as well as as everything else that they are absolutely and and you can you really can kind of see through the story how how these characters were shaped by the childhood of of being on crete as well and sort of how that affects their their relationships with 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 kind of love but also themselves and the idea of like Mm. what they want out of the world and you know whether you want to be safe or whether you want to explore and and there's they clearly react very differently to the childhood that, that they both shared. But you sort of touched on the fact that a lot of the stories of these women are shaped by their relationship with men. Something that really stood out to me in Ariadne was how the retelling isn't just sort of painting the story with the moral code that we have today of sort of heroes being heroes for the, for the greater good. They, these, are, these are heroes that are here to further their own fame and to sort of have their songs sung throughout the ages kind of thing. That's really what they're going for here. And they will do anything to stop other stories, particularly women's stories, infringing on this fame. I wondered if you could speak a bit about why it's really important that we recognise those more selfish motivations for for what it is and and sort of what motivated you to bring that into into the book. I think it's just it, it is such a different concept of a hero that that exists in the ancient world to today and gods as well you know I think in this um it, it's the, the Greek gods are so very very different to the Christian god and that kind of um sort of worldview that's that shaped our culture today and I, it's one of the things that I find so fascinating about ancient Greek mythology is how different that moral code is and how gods and heroes do exist purely um, to further their own fame and their own power and to gain this concept of immortality. I, I really, that's something that I remember really captured me back when I was doing my A-levels and we read the Iliad and we read the Odyssey. And in the Iliad, it's all about how Achilles will go to these monstrous lengths, absolutely terrible lengths, the, the things that he does in order to secure his immortality. But it's not just everybody else's life that he's willing to trade, it's his own as well. 
Yeah, so long as so long as his his name can be sung in songs for centuries, as it has been, um, he will massacre everyone in his path and he will die young and he'll sacrifice everything he could have had. And then in the Odyssey, Odysseus goes to the underworld and meets Achilles. And Achilles has this horrible moment of realization where he says, None of it was worth it. And if I could be alive, I would be the sort of lowliest unknown surf in the world, just so that I could be alive and I could know love and I could, you know, um, have have all of these things that I didn't know how to value when I had them and I just really loved the bleak tragic irony of that that's something that has really stayed with me and that I think is so much at the core of why these stories are so interesting so why they've got this psychological resonance for us today it's really about what is important in life and what matters in life and the the concept that we have today of what a hero is whether it's kind of like a superhero and I'm watching all the Spider-Man films with my kids at the moment. So, so um, that's what comes to my mind when I think of a hero. Or you might think of kind of, you know, people who who are noble and self-sacrificing in all of these brave and courageous ways. It's just not how the ancient world viewed them. And, um, and I, I love that. I love the way that it makes it, as well as being... Um, as well as us being able to trace our connections and, and identify the common strands of humanity, also the fact that this is a very alien, very ancient, very different culture in many ways as well. Um, I, I think that's part, part of the appeal. You can definitely see that there are parts of the book that are really sort of tackling this this idea that, that does come through in, in things like the Iliad and the Odyssey of of is is the fame really worth it? Is what you're doing to the people around you really worth it as well and a lot of it really you know you, you spoke about um being inspired by the me too movement and there are lots of sort of parts of the book that really really resound with a lot of the kind of social and political discourse going on today were there sort of any parts that felt particularly relevant to you while writing the book yeah, I think bringing Medusa into it was a really direct response to that. Um, so having Medusa play a role in Ariadne's story, which she does in some much kind of lesser known myths, but not in the more common um, stories around Ariadne. But Medusa, I think you can see at the moment, she's really having um, a moment in in popular culture because people are finding her to be such a hugely relevant sort of character. And the, the story around Medusa is not just that she is a monster, it's that she was made a monster in punishment for something that a god did to her, that she was assaulted by Poseidon, and then she's punished by Athena, and Poseidon doesn't pay the price. The fact that it, it's, a, it's a goddess who does that to Medusa as well, I think her story, I think, is going to it strikes so many chords with, with um, women today with all kinds of people today about how um, she pays the price for somebody else's crime and then she is vilified for it and she's kind of literally monstered, which I think um, people find happens after something like that, that, that they're treated like the criminal, that they're treated like they are, you know, made, made ugly or made lesser or, you know, dehumanised, I think, is, is the heart of it. So her story seemed really one of the most relevant to today's society even though it's this kind of very fantastical story and I think a lot of us remember Medusa from the old films where she is just this this hideous monster with the snakes for her I think bringing her into it and giving her her voice back and giving her humanity back is is such an important thing the novel really does give Medusa her 
humanity back because Ariadne is always sort of looking whenever she sort of comes up against something she's always looking back and going yeah but remember what the gods have done to us yeah it's such a warning absolutely and so after sort of I finished Ariadne I was really excited to see that your second novel Electra um, is on the horizon would you like to tell us a bit about that yeah of course and so Electra tells the story of the three women whose lives are really shattered by their involvement with Agamemnon, the commander of the Greek armies who leads them um, to war against Troy. So it's his wife, Clytemnestra, who he betrays in the most monstrous of ways before he sails to war. It's uh, Cassandra, the Trojan priestess, whose city he besieges for 10 years, and then the title character, Electra, who is the daughter that he leaves behind. And all the while that Agamemnon is gone, Electra is nurturing this very dangerous delusion about the kind of man that her father is and this obsession that grows and grows to threaten everyone around her. That sounds brilliant, yeah. And you're, is it the Iliad that inspired a lot of this, or what, what were the sort of myths that you're pulling into Electra? So it's the Oresteia by Aeschylus, which is the, the trilogy that deals with the House of Atreus. So that is Clytemnestra, Agamemnon and Electra. And then, yeah, for, um, for, for Troy, for Cassandra's story, then I was also drawing on the Iliad as well. But going into Troy, I was really interested to see it from the inside of the walls rather than the outside. So to imagine what it would have been like to be within that city um, with the Greek armies um, massed outside. And for Cassandra as well, her curse is that she can see the future but nobody will believe her so she is trapped inside this city unable to leave knowing what kind of disaster is going to befall them and absolutely powerless to stop it so Cassandra also feels like quite a relevant person for you know there are some parallels for for today's society as well I think Um, and I was I, I did write this novel during lockdown so going into a besieged city in some ways felt felt quite quite similar to, to what was going on <laughs> yeah I can imagine you could really get into the headspace of that there couldn't you yeah. Lockdown, yeah and although we sort of have been in lockdown have you been able to um visit any of these places at all no so that that has been the um I think yeah a, a, a shame that actually I haven't been able to go anywhere in the international travel has not been very straightforward these past couple of years and um, but I do um I think at least we do have um, the internet and we can go and you can do you can even do virtual tours of of various archaeological sites so it does help to see it in some ways so yeah, we've got access fortunately to so many visuals which help oh well fingers crossed that sometime in the future you can you can go and explore these places for in, so. in the flesh yeah and uh so a sort of question that we we always like to to ask our authors on the love your library podcast is what do libraries mean to you Oh, that's a great question. And well, and yeah, I love libraries. So it's it's obviously, I think, like probably loads of people that you have, I imagine, will have such fun childhood memories of spending Saturday afternoons in in a in a local library and picking out books. And as a parent as well, I found libraries to be absolutely invaluable and um, to take my children to do the summer reading challenges. To it, it's just it really helps to nurture their love of reading. And um, they're always such welcoming, friendly spaces. So yeah, I absolutely love libraries. It's oh, great to hear. Thank you for joining us on the podcast, Jennifer. Oh, thank you so much for having me.
Wow, yeah, I really enjoyed speaking with Jennifer. Um, it was great to hear how she weaves all of that research on such a big subject into one brilliant tale. And uh, remember, she was talking about the summer reading challenge there. For those of you who'd like to get involved, we've currently got the winter reading challenge running across our libraries. The challenge is to read four books and it's running until the 26th of February. So really brilliant thing to get involved with there. Check out our website for details on how to sign up and we'll also put a link in the episode show notes. Yeah, and I found it particularly interesting to hear about the links to the Me Too movement. Obviously, I was saying it's, it's great to bring these modern concepts into these mythical tales that are kind of classic and, and really well known. But I think it just shows that there's so much to apply, even with stories like that. It keeps them relevant. Yeah, absolutely. And speaking of classics, it's time now to hear another recommendation, this time from Chris, who works in our Central Library team, who's brought a bit of a classic to the table. I won't spoil it for you, we'll go into the into the chat with Chris, but it's one of my absolute favourites and it's well worth a read. So without further ado, let's hear from Chris. Hello Chris, welcome to the podcast. Hello, thank you for having me. So before we get started, would you be able to tell us a little bit about your job and what you're working on? Yeah, sure. So I joined Hampshire Library Service in 2018 uh, and I was working at Hive and Totten Libraries for three years. Um, and I'm currently covering someone's maternity leave in the business development team. Um, so working on the library's data and collecting data and analysing data and helping out a little bit with communications as well. So it's been interesting moving from facing the public and helping out in branch to this new role where I'm now working from home all the time and dealing with lots of numbers and keeping track of uh, lots of different ways of of measuring how the library is performing, um, which is really fascinating. It's a completely different perspective on what I was doing a year or so ago. That sounds that sounds really good. And and so the book that you've uh, selected for us to talk about, I mean, doesn't really need much of an introduction, but we'll, we'll do that bit anyway. Um, would you like to tell us a bit about the book that you've chosen today? Uh, yeah, so the book that I've chosen to discuss uh, with you guys is 1984 by George Orwell, which has a kind of mythical status in most cultures, I suppose. It's just one of those books that has managed to circulate very, very widely. And I think most people in the world, dare I say, have sort of some sense of what this book is about. But if I was to try and sort of summarise it in a sentence, I suppose I'd say it was about one person, Winston Smith's attempt to kind of exist in a world where existence has been kind of controlled and dictated by a sort of totalitarian state and every aspect of uh, existence now is kind of in control of this party by um, keeping close watch of its of its people um, and there doesn't seem to be any way to kind of escape from uh, that kind of surveillance and uh, yeah I was, I was drawn to the novel because I, was, I, was, I read a book about um, surveillance capitalism and I was thinking about these big sort of tech companies like Google and Amazon and Apple and I was thinking about how kind of my own existence was being shaped by these 
kind of technologies and how it uh, kind of transformed our lives. And I think that's still something that we're coming to terms with. Uh, haven't really kind of grasped, I suppose, uh, how that sort of changed our lives. So I've wondered whether this novel might kind of provide some sort of perspective on that in some way. So yeah, that was kind of my, my route into reading this last year. It is one of these books that, just as you were saying, is, is kind of a cultural touch point for so, so many different things. You know, it even has sparked a uh, entire TV show with the name Big Brother, which is obviously one of the core figures, like a villain in, in, the, in the book. Do you think that being aware of this prior to reading it, as, as I think everyone, as you were saying, across the world might be before picking this book up now, do you think it shaped the way that you read it? Do you think maybe it changed your perspective based on reading it after knowing that? No, yeah, that's a really interesting question. You, it's one of those novels that you come to with uh, a load of baggage, I suppose, from the way in which it's been um, circulated through popular culture and, as you say, through reality television. Did that affect how I read it? I suppose, yeah, on, on some level it must have. Um, it's one of those novels that you can't not read with some sort of bias already, as it were, or um, some kind of idea of what it's going to be about. I would say that I, I found it quite a difficult read. It's quite kind of shocking in a way in how it explores just how cruel and horrible we can be, I suppose, and just that human capacity to really make things uh, awful for ourselves. It's important for that reason as well. It's, uh, it's more like a, a reminder that you know those things that I probably take for granted too much in my day-to-day life, probably one of the key ideas in this is that kind of reminder that seemingly stable things in your life can never or never should sort of take for granted. It's definitely a quite a uncomfortable read, isn't it? It is that I think, yeah. Um, yeah. like you're saying about the kind of having to confront the kind of people's capacity for cruelty is something that, that I definitely found really hard about um, when I first read it. I think obviously it being published shortly after the Second World War, it's clearly quite sort of engaged in the kind of psychology of of genocide and cruelty and and authority and and that kind of thing these are some really you know difficult topics that i think the the novel does a really good job of engaging in but it does make it hard um but i think sort of one of the one of the tools he uses in the book to sort of engage in that is is this uh, kind of concept of like new speak as well and like almost inventing this this new language to engage in these ideas that might otherwise be quite complex and might need to be sort of paused to be explained every now and again so he sort of uses the this kind of conceit of new speak to to not break the kind of fourth wall really doesn't he and did, did you did you find the new language in the book kind of a hindrance or did you find it sort of helped your reading of it yeah i, I found that aspect of the book really interesting because i think that question of how we take care of language and how language is used or abused is absolutely sort of critical to the to the novel. And with this new speak in the story, it's this party sort of reducing language and simplifying language down to like the bare bones, as it were, um, so that any kind of nuance is unnecessary and um, you can reduce everything to just a really kind of practical. Uh, simplified way of sort of understanding the world uh, with the aim of kind of reducing people's capacity to think 
or to feel, imagine, or remember. And so I think, yeah, the, the text, it's kind of interesting thinking about the, the style of the novel and how it, how it kind of presents that language to the reader, I suppose. And it kind of expects the reader, as you say, to kind of remain kind of critical of it, um, I suppose, obviously. And it just seems like a kind of alien language to the reader encountering it for the first time. And you're kind of like, what, what is this kind of um, abbreviated form of communication? Yeah, it's, it's quite good at the way in which it's presented, but uh, kind of striking you as something which is odd and uncomfortable and uh, sort of disquieting for the way in which it's trying to diminish the world whose characters are living. That's kind of one of the kind of profound things about this novel is it's, is it's kind of commentary on language and just the importance of taking care of it and our responsibility to take care of it and um, to re- preserve it as well. Yeah, that is it's such an interesting link, isn't it? As you say, the, the power of memory and language, it's all um, joins up in, in that way in the book. One of the other, I mean, <laughs> if anything, the, the core component of the book is the character of Winston, obviously. I think in a, in a reading, you might sympathise with him quite a lot, but you also have reasons to be, of course, to be critical of him and his actions and the way he goes as well. Um, what, how did you find Winston as a character? Did you find him particularly sympathetic with the things that you didn't like about him? Yeah, that's, that's a really interesting question, I suppose, because there's a, with this novel, it's kind of playing on that flattening of feeling that's kind of affected all of the people in, in the novel in the early stages. And so it's almost difficult to sympathise because you're not sure in this world whether the normal range of feelings sort of still applies. And it's almost like this vacuum of, of relationships and the, the characters, uh, kind of, their relationships are reduced to being their, their comrades rather than friends or, or lovers or anything else. Um, and so I suppose you're sympathetic in, in that sense. You realise again how, how rich your own life is for being able to have feelings and express them. And, and so I suppose I was sympathetic from that point of view. I feel, I feel sorry for sort of everyone in this, in this text. Yeah, and, that's and nice, so isn't it? Difficult not to feel sorry for them when all those kind of boundaries between good and bad and any kind of sense of justice is taken away. Mm, definitely. Something that like about Winston's character that really stood out to me was was that I I just got really frustrated reading his sort of story. And I think that's you know that obviously that's the point is that is that we're sort of seeing somebody who's had his power stripped away, you know, his power of thought and of, of criticism completely stripped away from him. And so when we're reading this and thinking, oh my God, come on, you can, we can engage in this some in some way, please engage in this. And he just, he just can't, he literally can't. Um, and obviously he does, uh, and it, we sort of end up there, but it takes, takes a while. I really, when I first read it when I was 16, I remember just being like, come on. <laughs> come on, Winston. Yeah. But I think the, the, there's sort of been some criticism um, about uh, how Julia's character and um, an argument that, that she maybe only really serves as a, as a vehicle for, for Winston's own sort of character growth and, and realisation and sort of yeah, political realisations. And so there's, a, there's a, actually a retelling due to come out in 2023 from the perspective of Julia, which I, I think will be really, really interesting. I think, I think that'll be a, a, a great read. So what kind of thing do you think you'd like to see preserved and what would you like to see challenged in the retelling, do you think? Yeah, I think it'd be really fascinating to see 
the extent to which Julia is granted interiority to the same degree that Winston is in text, and whether we feel those same frustrations through Julia's perspective, I suppose. I think it would be really good to open up that discussion of what Julia is thinking and what Julia is feeling in this story, because as we've kind of touched upon already, she does seem to be a bit of an object for Winston in this text, and there doesn't seem to be a great deal of exploration of who she is or what she thinks or how she feels, I suppose. And so I think it would do wonders to, to kind of open up the story from another perspective and explore a bit more what's going on there with desire and gender. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And I think there's a there's a lot that can be done there still, I think, isn't there? But um, yeah, so, sort of um, thinking about how those, the kind of welding of the book and how um, there's sort of an, a, like allusions to wars going on elsewhere that aren't really seen and allusions to uh, countries taking different shapes and continents taking different shapes. And I think um, London is referred to as Airstrip 1 within the, the country or, or state of Oceania. And I think that's at a time when borders were shifting and and places were being invaded and taken over and but this there's also this kind of idea that and none of this may be going on this this may all be sort of just a, another conceit of the state and, and the party and um i think for me i found this re i really wanted to sort of dive into into the the world more i really wanted to know sort of more about this but we always have in in dystopian fiction this kind of idea that you can never know what's what's outside of the bounds of the character and so i was sort of wondering how did you find that the kind of allusions to the world outside of winston affected kind of your interpretation of 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 winston his character and his sort of journey really yeah i think the novel does a really good job of playing up that idea of uh, the nation state as being a kind of fiction in itself and as you say constantly they're constantly switching as to who they're allied with and who they're at war against um and there seems to be a war going on perpetually yeah it's kind of you're interested in what these other super states might be but at the same time they seem to be interchangeable and so again it's that kind of emptying out of any kind of detail or meaning which is kind of horrifying the horrifying thing and that sort of reduction of a whole group of people to a way of sort of classifying them which is kind of chilling i suppose um and yeah it's fascinating to think about what role our understanding of nationhood has in, in how we kind of see ourselves i think that's one thing about the novel that is really striking is it seems quite stuck in a certain image of sort of England and Englishness uh, and kind of that post-war moment of everything being a bit knackered and a bit tired and it's difficult not to read it as a kind of commentary on on England I suppose it kind of it struggles to escape out of that local setting I suppose and I think that's probably got something to do with um, Orwell's sort of relationship to, to the UK as well and yeah I suppose it's really interesting how it calls up those people who don't belong anywhere and who no longer exist at all. There was that early scene in the novel where 
they're watching a film of people that they're supposed to hate and it's sort of refugees on a boat and the boat is being uh, destroyed by one of their helicopters and they're cheering because these refugees are being killed and it's really shocking and in that sort of situation you know identification with a state kind of becomes meaningless I suppose and it all seems very arbitrary so yeah it's fascinating how it uh, at once can seem very connected to a particular place so in the same time it really calls attention to how again how all of that stuff can just fall away and can create situations in which people um, are considered to not belong anywhere I think I mean this genre is, is my favorite genre but I love sort of like post-apocalyptic dystopia all of that kind of thing is, is really like right on my street and I think one of the most elegant things that books like this do is to create a setting that is familiar enough to for a reader to be able to identify with it so in in this book obviously uh, you know it's got a global appeal but particularly it's it is very English it's very very recognizably so but it kind of occupies this position which is jarringly different you know the differences the get the gulf between the the horrors but uh, the, the horrors of this imagined world and reality but also the proximity of those two things that positioning is what makes dystopia so well you know good dystopia I think it's so well done and what really makes I think that's what makes for the uncomfortable read you know you're so familiar with the place that it feels like home or it feels, you know, like the place that you're living in. There are parallels in this book that was written decades ago that obviously really resonate with things today. And some of the horrible things really resonate with things that are happening today. And that that position of of being familiar and really strikingly different, that that overlap is, is where I think this kind of novel really shines. Yeah, I completely agree. That kind of familiar, unfamiliar, uncanny thing going on. It's kind of your world, but not. Yeah, I completely agree. I think that's an amazing part of dystopian fiction. Mm-hmm. I mean, sp- speaking of dystopia, are there any other books that you'd recommend to someone who enjoyed this book or who wanted to read a bit more in into either this genre or a similar style of book? Uh, yeah. So I think uh, another interesting book about surveillance and which is kind of dystopian looking into the future i suppose would be um super sad true love story by gary stengart um which is really interesting on sort of technology and how our sort of relationship to technology is reshaping who we are it's about the united states decline as a country it's interesting kind of looking at that novel in relationship to 1984 I can see sort of connections there between what's going on with technology and um, surveillance in, in both. Yeah, yeah, I've written it down. I, that sounds like something I'd be really interested in. You were saying that you were reading a book about, um, or you were looking into sort of surveillance capitalism at the beginning. Were, were, were there any particular books that were in, involved that? Yeah, so I've, I've read some, it's a book called The Age of Surveillance Capitalism, and it's by um, Shoshona Zuboff. I hope I pronounced um, her name correctly. And in that work, she refers to Orwell quite a few times, I think. And it's just a 
the internet at once absolutely amazing and at the same time absolutely terrifying and i'm kind of very grateful that i kind of grew up at a time before it and so i have some sort of perspective on it because i think it's really reshaped us in ways that we're still kind of catching up with and it has completely changed a lot of things and still trying to understand how yeah definitely definitely it's a very weird time to to exist isn't it we i was talking to someone recently actually about how i don't know if you remember when you used to text someone used to be in a conversation with them um or even even online but you'd kind of take breaks within it and you'd say oh be right back just going to do this um or like oh i have to go to bed now good night kind of thing conversations don't happen like that anymore online you you are basically constantly in a, a never-ending conversation with every single person you talk to online i've never in the past five years been messaging someone and gone oh be right back or oh, I, I like i'm going to bed now kind of thing you're basically constantly expected to reply whenever you're available to and that is i think that presence of communication is really even within the era of the internet you know i'm talking the difference between 10 and you know 10 years ago to now not that vast in history times but in terms of the way we communicate that's a massive change you're you're constantly expected to be there um all the time and that, that's quite a big pressure to have so yeah i completely agree it's it's Scary. yeah yeah there's no no switch off mm. one of the one of the sorry as i was saying a bit of a dystopia nerd one of the books that is often sort of compared and contrasted to 1984 is brave new world by aldous huxley and that's another one you know british writer similar time of uh, writing and stuff but the ways that they present this kind of totalitarian regime you know, is is really, really different. You've got 1984, which kind of does it by suppressing people's desires, suppressing their pleasures and making it very, you know, you, you only get two minutes to express your hate and that is as much emotion as you can ever express at any single time. And that's supposed to sort of keep the, keep the people quiet. Whereas in Huxley's imagination uh, or, or imagined world, it's an excess of pleasures. You know, they're all taking Soma, which is drugs. They're like going to the cinema all the time. They're like going to dances, listening to music. They're basically overloaded with pleasure and overloaded with, you know, yeah, it, it basically gives them no desire to change their situation. And, and that kind of lets the state operate in a, in a different, it's a different mechanism, but the same outcome. And I find that imagination of, you know, is our downfall going to be like, oppressed to the to the point where we're controlled by that oppression or are we going to be freed to the point where we're controlled by that freedom and i think that that potentially without getting too deep um the internet kind of intersects between the two because you've got the control the censorship the your newsfeed is tailored and you only get to see a certain slice of reality on the flip side we're overloaded with apps games entertainment you know loads of different ways and new ways to try and release all the serotonin and everything. It's kind of like we're literally occupying that midpoint between these two concepts. I find that so interesting. But yeah, that, that would be um, my interpretation of it anyway. Oh, I think that's, I, think, I do think that's really interesting. I'd, I'd not really thought about looking at, at what we're going through as, as a kind of 
crossover between Brave New World and 1984. <laughs> the crossover no one ever expects. Yeah. <laughs> well, Chris, thank you for uh, joining us and for recommending 1984, uh, as well as some other brilliant books there that you mentioned. We hope to speak to you again really soon. Yeah, thank you for having me. Yeah, it's been, it's been good fun. What a choice. I absolutely love talking to Chris. And as you might have been able to tell, 1984 is one of my absolute favourites. So that was a treat. Yeah, it's and so amazing to think about that book and how it was inspired by such a tumultuous era of history. Yet we're still asking so many of these questions today, sort of about security and, and language. It's, it's an amazing, amazing book. Yeah. And, and Chris made such a good point about, you know, the way that language is kind of being used by figures of power and actually it's a really nice position that the library service sits in to to kind of combat that by making knowledge and language in the books that you can borrow as accessible as possible so it's a really actually a positive link out of quite quite a dark story and that's about all we have time for uh thank you for listening and thank you to borrowbox for supporting this podcast i'm isaac favashi and i'm hattie dulac